0: So Luke chapter 18 this morning, we are finishing Luke chapter 18, so you can go ahead and turn to the end of of the chapter. Um, A a lot of what we have seen throughout Luke's Gospel um, is that Jesus does, uh, and you see this in all the Gospels too, is that Jesus does a lot of like correcting. He does a lot of of correcting, and his his teaching is, is consistently correcting it's consistently training and retraining uh, those who uh, who are hearing Jesus because the the Jewish people they they have their own ideas they have their own traditions on how they think God things work with with God and, and through their experiences it's kind of this developed this system that they uh, that they have they have like their own marks and, and 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 things that that they would look signs that would make People think, like, if this person's a true believer or not, if they're blessed by God or not, and they have these lists and standards and rules, and people had to measure up to those particular, uh, those particular rules, um, and, and all of that was to determine if they were righteous or if they were not righteous. Um, now, that's a little reductionistic of, the, of Judaism at the time, but the point is, is in, in all of that, Jesus is correcting them and showing um, the people, his hearers, um, especially his disciples, a lot of times, the things that they believe about God, the things that they believe about righteousness, the things that they believe about the kingdom of God and salvation and salvation history uh, and, and how they relate to one another, all of those things he just corrects them on because a lot of it was just wrong. It was just dead wrong. In in chapter 18, we we see a lot of that. We see a lot of teaching of Jesus to the disciples and to everybody that's around them, including the Pharisees, on how wrong they were about what they believed about the kingdom of God and how someone comes into the kingdom of God or how someone inherits uh, eternal life. And this is what Jesus is doing throughout his ministry. Now we know the, the point of his ministry is to get to the cross. like last time we were together, we talked about that. that was the, that's the point. That's why he came. But in that, Jesus is teaching up to that point because we need correction. Because oftentimes we come to the scriptures, many come to the scriptures, which is terrible expectations, unbiblical ideas, weak theology, things that need to be, need to be corrected legalists who want to use the imperatives from the Scripture and the commands of Scripture to gain and earn favor with God and then hold themselves up over others. And then there are others who want to use the love of God and the grace of God to justify their sinful behavior and then to continue to walk in it. And these are the things that Jesus is constantly correcting and teaching. And we see that here in chapter uh, chapter 18, and the, the parable of the Pharisee and the, the tax collector that go to the temple, the, um, the, the calling of the children to come to him, the, the story of the, uh, the rich young ruler, and last time when Jesus told his disciples of his coming death and resurrection. All this was to correct and to teach and to train His people. So let's let's look. So so on this theme of what Jesus is doing, correcting and teaching, let's read this next story together, starting in verse thirty-five of 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 the Gospel of Luke. Verse thirty-five: As he drew near to Jericho, which means he's on his way to Jerusalem, a blind man was sitting by the roadside, begging. In hearing a crowd going by. He inquired what this meant. He told, they told, them, told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front of him rebuked him, telling him, be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped. And commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, they gave praise to God. And this is the word of the Lord. And may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see this holy inspired inert word for his glory and for our joy. Amen. If you might remember, Jesus told us in the very beginning of his ministry, after he was tempted in the wilderness, he came back to the synagogue of his hometown and he began his ministry by standing up in the synagogue reading from the prophets. And he read from Isaiah. And he said in the the lines of Isaiah 61, he said that through the Holy Spirit, he would be the one that would fulfill this Messianic prophecy. And in that Messianic prophecy, it said To proclaim liberty to the captives in the recovering the sight of the blind. Literally, the blind have received their sight. Jesus is literally fulfilling Isaiah 61 in this text. Now, this isn't the first time we've seen Jesus heal the blind. But this is a very specific point where it was kind of a one-guy kind of deal. Before it was, he healed blind, he healed lepers, he healed uh, the sick and the lame and things like that. It's more of a group thing. But this is the first time in the Gospel of Luke that he healed the blind. But even greater than that, to what this passage was speaking of, is that he would heal the spiritually blind. And that they too would receive a sight that they didn't even know that they were missing. Now, John chapter 9 gives us a more of a, an exhausted story of a blind man that Jesus, uh, that Jesus gives uh, uh, sight to, and I commend you to, to read that. It's such a wonderful chapter. Um, but here in this passage, which comes uh, here in Luke 18, might also be what's in Mark chapter 10 with the, the blind Bartimaeus. Um, we, we really don't know if it's the same same guy or not. It sounds quite like it's, a, it's the same, but the name in Luke doesn't matter. That's not the point. But where this man exhibited blindness, he showed a sight that no one else around him had, including the disciples. So, can you see... What this blind man saw before he could see. I think that's the question that we must ask ourselves in understanding this text. In understanding this passage and how it then interprets for us and how we apply it into our lives. This question sets this guy apart, doesn't it? This question helps us understand that this guy is being completely set apart than the rest of the characters that we've seen in chapter 18, other than the tax collector himself. Whether he was was blind, but he could see something no one else could. It was what the rich young ruler could not see. Who was blind? He was the real blind one. He walked away sad because he was blind to the greatest treasure in front of him and went after trinkets instead, as a rich man. They were blind. The disciples were blind. They could not understand those things that Jesus told them about. They were blind. But not this guy. He was blind. But he could see something more valuable than any of the others. So, the three questions, which happen to be the three questions for the response time today, is what could the blind man see? What could Jesus see? And what does Jesus do? So, this first question what could the blind man see? Nothing, right? He was blind. he was blind. With his eyes of the flesh, he could see nothing. And in, in our, in our passage actually renders that very well, that we know that he is blind. He was completely helpless to take care of himself, except for getting from point A to point B with the help of others to be able to beg, uh, to, to beg for money and for food, which is his only way of of sustenance is the only way that he could survive, and and he made himself to a get himself to a good central location. the The road from Jericho to Jerusalem around Passover that's a good place to be. That's a good place to to beg. That's where people were going to go because that's the road to get to Jerusalem if you don't want to go through Samaria, which we've already learned that Jews don't want to go through Samaria. So here's everybody, especially the good, pious Jews that want to be seen throwing money into the cup of a a blind man. This is how he survived. But look at verse 36. It tells us that as he was in his, his same old average day, verse 36 says that, that there was this large crowd passing by. So, so something different out of the ordinary, kind of this ordinary stream of people that were coming, there was this large crowd coming, a large crowd that was, that was coming down the road. And so the, the blind man, like any of us would do, we'd be like, what's going on? Like, why is there a roadblock? Like, we are driving, we see a roadblock, we go, why is there a roadblock? Or what's, what's going on? Like, why is there, you know, police on the side of the road? Why is there a large crowd gathered here? The things that we would want to know, he wanted to know. What's, what's going on in verse 37? They tell him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Why is Jesus of Nazareth passing by? Because he's going to Jerusalem. We know that. He's going to Jerusalem. And now this is where the story gets interesting in verse 38. Because it's not what the blind man does, but it's what the blind man says. In verse 38, he doesn't say, Jesus of Nazareth, heal my blindness, or Jesus of Nazareth, give me food, or Jesus of Nazareth, give me some money. He doesn't use the, the geographical name that they told who was coming. They said, Jesus of Nazareth is coming. He doesn't use that name. Why? Why doesn't he use that name? But he cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, this is very significant because Jesus doesn't call himself son of David. Last passage, Jesus said son of man will come. But the blind man says, son of David. In fact, it's only used one time in Luke's gospel, and it's right here. The people hear the blind man aimlessly yelling out, because he doesn't know which direction Jesus is. Jesus, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. And they rebuke him. They they yell at him. They tell him, quiet and here's why i think he's being annoying for one thing he's yelling he's trying to get his attention over everybody else there, he, there he, he's being annoying he's maybe being too loud he's breaking the decorum if, if other people are trying to speak to him but i think they rebuke him because he calls them the son of david he calls them the son of david so what could the blind man see With his flesh, he could see nothing. It was no help at all. Where everyone else missed, he saw. He saw what everyone else needed to see. He knew something. He believed something that everyone else needed to see and believed, just like the disciples who couldn't understand what Jesus was telling them earlier The blind man understood. He understood something profound and and, and glorious. He understood that Jesus is the son of David, which means he is the Messiah. He doesn't use the geographical name. You want to know why? Because it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. He goes straight to the Messianic name in the Old Testament. The son of David. will who god will put on the throne and rule and reign forever this is straight up old testament legit prophecy being fulfilled he wasn't just a good teacher he wasn't just a, a genuine prophet but that he is the the one appointed and anointed by god so going back to isaiah 61 The one who would be anointed by God, by the Holy Spirit, would come. It's Jesus. The Messiah. That's what Messiah means. The anointed one. The one that God was sending into the world to bring mercy and grace and to save his people from their sin as the fulfillment of God's promises to his people. And that's why he cried out and yelled annoying and offended others. Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Now this is why this is important. This is why I think this is important for us to see this morning. Because anyone who follows Jesus must confess that Jesus is the Christ. Which is also to say, Jesus is the son of David. Or Jesus is the Messiah. When you say Jesus Christ, you are confessing that Jesus is the anointed one of God. Christ is not his last name. It's who he is. We may not say son of David, but as son of God, he was sent by the Father. He's not just Jesus of Nazareth. Is that Somewhat sufficient in the sense of who's coming, maybe. But it's not sufficient in a confession of a disciple. He's not just Jesus of Nazareth. He's not just Jesus, the good moral teacher, who tells us to be nice and to share things and to love others. He's not just the prophet. Or is he just the the newest excuse for everyone to be tolerant of the sin that he was actually nailed on the cross for and resurrected from the dead to set us free from. He is Jesus, the Son of God, the Anointed One of God, who proclaimed the good news of the gospel that in himself he would be offered up on the cross as a propitiation, a, a sacrifice for our sins. That he himself is the good news of the gospel. And it's that gospel that Jesus is Christ that we proclaim today. And if anyone is to follow Jesus, if anyone is to follow him, then what is it? They must believe in who the Bible tells us who Jesus is. You cannot become a Christian without confessing that truth. You cannot be a church member of Sovereign Grace Church unless you say that Jesus is the Christ and you believe that Jesus is the Son of God. So this morning, brothers and sisters, when we have two younger brothers of ours come up this morning and give their testimony as church members of Sovereign Grace Church, you want to listen of what they believe. No pressure on you guys we're good. So that's the first question. What could this guy see? Now you have the answer. Kenny now knows you have the answer, and he's expecting a good answer, right? Expectations. He's got it. Here we go. Second question, what could Jesus see? The blind man, who even in his blindness could see that Jesus was the Messiah. What does he say? He says, have mercy on me. Even in his blindness, he calls out to the son of David to have mercy on him because he's the only one who could heal him. And he's the only one that could make him whole. And this is why he persistently petitioned Jesus because he is the son of David, the, the Messiah. But what could Jesus see? What could Jesus see? I think the answer is simple. Look in verse 42. I think Jesus sees faith. Jesus sees faith. He, he draws attention to the fact that faith here in this in this story is the mean by which this man was healed that this man received his sight and faith is the means by which we receive the kingdom of god because at faith is in the person it's in the life it's in the death and in the resurrection of jesus christ look back again at verse 40 Jesus asked the blind man to come come near, to be brought near. He commanded, actually. You see the word commanded there. And Jesus asks, what do you want? And that just seems to be the most obvious question of the day, right? I mean, clearly we know what this man wants. But this man wants Jesus to recover his sight. He wants to see. So he's not asking for food. He's not asking for money. He's not asking for justice for those who might have took advantage of him. He's not, he's not asking for those things. But he is asking for sight. Now, now we might think, well, that, man, you, you have Jesus in front of you. I, I wouldn't be asking for something that may be a little superficial because you, you probably need forgiveness first, right? You, you might need forgiveness and, and, and uh, your need for salvation and forgiveness of sin. But again, this request um, actually displays, again, what this guy believes and has faith in who Jesus is. Let me illustrate that for you. If you come up to me after the service and you ask me, Ben, can you help me recover my sight? If you were blind, you came to me and asked me that. I would say, I will pray for you, and we'll pray right there. And I'll, I'll call upon the church to pray for you. We can even lay hands, and we can we can pray for you. And why would I pray for you? Because I can't heal you. I'm not the one that could heal you. So I pray because God can heal you. So this man asks Jesus, because He believes that Jesus, who is God, is the only one that can heal him. So do you see how he's he's actually honoring Jesus and asking him to heal? Because I believe who you are. You are the son of David. You are the son of the living God. You are God incarnate, and you alone can give me back my sight and and i think jesus is just joyfully responds and says you got it recover your sight man because he sees a faith in him that is rare recover your sight your faith has made you well your faith has made you well now this is where we have to be careful though and I always like to point out when there's a potential error or heresy. And unfortunately, this passage is often used by um, the faith healers of our world. And if they use the Bible, if they have any sense of understanding of the Bible, they would sometimes point to this passage and, and they would say, See, if 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 you have faith, faith that, like, faith that the kind of faith that kind of like healed this man. Then, then faith is the source of our healing. So if you have enough faith, you too can be healed whatever it may be, whatever, whatever that you bring to the table. So of course for the faith healer, this is a win-win situation for them, right? We, we know this. This is a win-win situation for them because when at one of their crusades and someone comes up and asks for something and they, they don't get healed, who do they get to say whose fault it is? It's not theirs. It's not, it's not theirs. It's not the faith healers. I mean, they did their part. They, they told you what to do. Have faith, have faith. And, and then they they're the ones that prayed for you. They anointed you with the triple refined olive oil straight from the Holy Land experience in Orlando. They're the ones who slapped you in the forehead. It's not my fault you didn't get healed. You didn't have enough faith. You didn't have enough faith. That is not what this passage is telling us. That is not what Jesus is telling us here. That's not what's meant in verse 42. Faith is not the source of our redemption, is it? It's not the source of our redemption. It's the means. It's the instrument. It's the the, the copper wire by which electricity is transmitted. That is Faith is the the conduit that we receive grace and that we receive the blessings of God. Some would say that, that faith is something that we all have. We just need to exercise it in such a way that would bring about salvation because God then meets us with his grace halfway. So God meets us here, and faith we bring our faith that God gives us in our freeness to, to receive the grace. Now here's the problem with that. The problem is that, what about everybody else around Jesus that day? Didn't they come with Jesus with that kind of belief as well? But who was the one that was healed? The blind man blind man is the only one who could truly see that day. Why couldn't the blind, why couldn't the disciples see? Because they were not given the grace to have the faith to see and believe. John chapter 6, Jesus tells us, if the spirit, it is the spirit who gives life and the flesh has no help at all. The flesh has no help at all. Why? Because faith is the result of the gift Grace. It is a result of the gift of grace. Ephesians 2 8 and 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, right? So, right through conduit, through faith. Grace comes right through the faith. And not of your own doing. But what is it? It's a gift of God. Not a result of works that no one may boast. We have no right to boast. In our faith. Because we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for his good works, which he prepared beforehand, right? Before the foundation of the world, that we should walk in them. Philippians 1, 29 tells us that it has been granted, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should believe in him. Believe, pistuo faith. Same word being used. Faith. It has been granted to you. If you take something that's not granted to you, that's stolen. It's been granted to you that we should believe. Faith is a gift, and it is the means by which we are healed and received the grace of God. Because just like in John chapter 2, I think it's 2, maybe 1, maybe 129. By, by grace... By grace and grace upon grace. Because it's all about grace. And so what did Jesus see? Jesus saw faith. Jesus saw the work of the Holy Spirit in this blind man. And we need to see this morning, because this is how every disciple becomes a disciple. Right confession, but through faith. No one who is a disciple is a disciple if they do not come through faith. When each of you became a member of this church, we asked you to sign our covenant. And in that covenant, one of the points was that you would uphold the beliefs, you believe and you would uphold the beliefs of Sovereign Grace Church. And so one of our beliefs in our statement of faith at point eight says this We believe that repentance and faith are sacred duties. And also inseparable graces. Repentance and faith are graces. Rot in our souls. We don't use that. I didn't say rot, like it's rotting. Rot. W-R-O-U-G-H-T. Meaning it has been put there. It's been brought into our hearts and our souls, right? Wrought into our souls by the regenerating. Spirit of God. I love that. Repentance and faith, inseparable graces. They are unmerited gifts of God. Brought to us by the Holy Spirit through the gospel. And then, what does that faith do? Well, the point continues. It says, Being deeply convinced of our guilt, danger, and our helplessness, and of the way of salvation by Christ, the gospel... In our helplessness of coming into the kingdom of our own works, we come as tax collectors, we come as children, we turn to God with unfeigned contrition, confession, supplication for mercy. That's repentance. And at the same time, it says heartily, receiving the lord jesus christ as our prophet our priest and our king and we rely on him alone as the only and all sufficient savior this is this is us saying son of david have mercy on me that's what that means biblical faith always finds its trust its confidence its satisfaction its healing its forgiveness And it's joy in Christ alone. So do we wonder why the blind man then rejoiced? And why he glorified God? Because God did a work in him that only God could do. And he knew it. I know this seems like a point that we we really hammer home here at Sovereign Grace Church. I mean, it's in our name. Because this theology isn't, isn't just a, a piece of truth that we just kind of file in our minds to make ourselves feel good and, and, and to make ourselves feel like we know more. or it's, it's not just blind information like, like a textbook. No. This is the truth that is the, at the root of our joy. This is the truth that is at the the, the root of our our joy and the the root of our satisfaction in, in God because this is the truth that tells us that we come as the blind man and that as the blind man, despite that helpless, worthless state, God, in our blindness and sin and inability, He still saved us. He still gave us sight to see and, and he who was accomplishing his sovereign plan before the foundation of the world, he sent his son to live the life that I could not live, that you could not live, to die the death that I could not die and you could not die. And then through the Holy Spirit and the preaching of the gospel, he took the darkened eyes of our hearts, our souls, and he pierced them with life-giving light. And we see... Jesus, for the first time. Faith and repentance is the response to such an irresistible and effectual grace. And that is why faith shows up in this passage. So what does Jesus see? Jesus sees God-given faith. What does Jesus do? This is our last question. We know the answer to that question. He restores the the man's sight. And and Jesus sees the faith in this man, restores his his sight. The only one who could heal him heals him. But what else do we see Jesus doing here in this passage? We see again... Another example, how Jesus receives and draws nears, draws near the least of these. The, the unlikely fringes, the outcasts, and He makes them disciples. So what does Jesus do? Jesus is making disciples. Jesus makes a disciple. This guy was this blind guy was rebuked. He was he was told to be quiet. He was pushed back, and yet, what does Jesus do? Jesus commands that he is brought near. You know what's amazing about this passage? I'm I'm kind of wondering if maybe I'll put some of this together. Is that back in verses 15 and 17, wasn't the children also rebuked to stay back, to stop coming? That time by by the disciples. But, But here in this passage, the blind man was being hindered. And he sees Jesus as he is, the son of David, the Messiah. He comes in faith. In fact, doesn't he come kind of like a child does? He comes kind of like a child. He's wholly dependent on Jesus alone. His only hope is in Jesus alone. He's helpless He's trusting. He's humble. He's receptive, and he's loving. He comes in faith. He even kind of sounds like a child, right? He's persistent, right? It just keeps coming. In fact, Luke tells us that uh, earlier that Jesus says that those who come into kingdom in the kingdom of God, they come in the kingdom of God busting through. And here's a guy busting through. He's blind. He doesn't know where to go, but he's yelling, "Have mercy on me, Son of David." even sounds like a child, persistently asking the same question over and over and over and over again until they're finally acknowledged. And Jesus heals him, and he makes him a disciple. Look at verse 43. He says, immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. So why did he follow him then? Because Jesus commanded him to come near. Because Jesus commanded him to to come. Now by now in our our time in Luke, we've seen this little phrase of follow me and follow him uh, a few different times. This language isn't code. Following him is what a disciple does. A disciple follows Jesus. You're not a disciple if you're not following Jesus. I don't care what you say. And if you're not following Jesus and you're following something else, then you're not a disciple. Following him is what a disciple does. They leave everything and they follow him. They take up their cross and follow him. Again, we've got to be reminded of what we've heard in Luke 18 previously. The rich young ruler, the greatest candidate for church membership of all time. He's going to bring a tithe. Walks away sad, doesn't follow. Doesn't follow Jesus. In fact, Jesus actually specifically says, Follow me. And here's why Jesus doesn't make converts or fans, he doesn't make those things, he doesn't make those people. Jesus makes disciples, Jesus makes followers. And, and this is what's really good. And those he commands to be brought near to him, then praise God, they all come. Because his sheep hear his voice, and they follow him. So the unlikely blind guy on the side of the road begging, who could have seen that day that was, the one, that was a man who would be and redeemed? He could see something about Jesus that no one else could through faith. And Jesus makes this guy a disciple, a follower. And what I want to show you again and again over and over is that the unlikely, the overlooked, the small, the unimportant are becoming followers of Jesus. It's the point of the disciples that Jesus chose. He chose nobodies. He chose sinners. He chose people who were smelly. Dudes with no social capital, no education, no nobility. And he called them to follow him. What are the kind of disciples that Jesus is calling? These kind. Turn to 1 Corinthians really quick. Turn to 1 Corinthians. I want you to see this. Chapter 1. So in, as you turn in there, the, the, the church in Corinth... It was a very interesting church. Um, Had some messed up things going going on in it. Um, People were all over the place. They were were those who were in gross sin, yet still professed Christ as Savior. Um, Some showed great spiritual gifts, things that we've never seen. Uh, Some were were great teachers and and things like that. But, man, they were just messing up all over the place. In fact, one of their greatest issues was their, their pride they would boast in these things. They would, they would boast in the kind of food that they would bring to the Lord's Supper. They would, they would boast in the gifts that they had over others. And so their, their tendency was, was to boast in themselves, and to completely miss the kind of disciples that they were and the kind of disciples that we are. And that first and foremost, the disciples who are following Jesus, they boast only in the cross, in Christ alone. So look at chapter 1, look down to verse 26. Look what the Apostle Paul, through the Holy Spirit, exhorts these, this church to do in their pride. He says, for consider your calling brothers. Meaning, who called you? Who Who gave you faith? Who made you a disciple? Who, Who gave you grace? Consider your calling. Who called you? Who commanded you to come? He goes on to say, Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. Meaning this, have you looked in the mirror lately? You're not one of the top dogs. You are who you are. You're more like the blind man, the outsiders, the fringe, more than you may think. And because having sight, a job, clothes, a house, ability to do things and take care of yourself, that doesn't make you better. Verse 27, but God chose what is foolish. Wait a minute, who's foolish? He. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring nothing, to bring nothing. The, no things that are. Am I reading that right? Nothing. Bring to nothing things that are. Sorry. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus. Who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Now, isn't that something? Isn't this a good reminder? Isn't this a good reminder that, that even though we may come into this room this morning, or we, our whole lives, we've been able to see, we've been able, been able to have sight that we really have more in common with this blind man than we may have ever thought of before. How humbling, and yet how comforting. How humbling it is to think about that, that we are nothings and nobody's really in scope of the world. I mean, that's just who we are. But what does God take nothings and nobodies who are nothings to the world? He uses us to shame them and to baffle them because we are pictures of His grace, because we are all little pictures of works of of grace that none of us could accomplish and paint ourselves, but the master, the one, could, so that He could point to each of us and say, look at my disciple. At the end of John chapter 9, as we get ready to close, this is the three questions. At the end of chapter 9 of John, I told you earlier that that's one of the most exhaustive ones of, of a blind man uh, who received his sight. And, and that's where we get the line, I once was blind, but now I see. Um, John Newton didn't make that up, but it is an amazing grace. Um, we see at the end of John chapter 9 that, um, that Jesus calls this blind man to come back to him to come back to him, because he just went through the ringer with, his, with, with everybody in the synagogues. He was questioned twice by the Pharisees in the synagogues. His own parents pretty much denied him, um, told the truth that he was born blind, but basically said, you know, he can handle himself, Left them out on by himself. And he just told the truth to the, to the Pharisees. And, and he kind of pointed out the fact to them that they were probably the real blind ones and not him, because they couldn't see who Jesus is. And so they kicked him out of the synagogue. He wasn't allowed to come back to the synagogue. The Savior calls him to himself. I love this. He calls him to himself, and literally between verses 35 and 38, you can see the Holy Spirit work in this man's life. Jesus says, who's the son of man? And he's like, I don't know. Where is he? I don't know where he's at. And Jesus says, you're looking at him. And instantly he said, Lord, I believe. But in verse 39, Jesus says this, For judgment I came into the world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. And brothers and sisters, beloved of God, it is good for us to see this morning that we really couldn't see. It is good for us to remember that That he alone is the one who has made us to see. So that we too can sing, with John Newton, I once was blind, but now I see amazing grace. But isn't there a warning as well in Jesus' words? Like the Pharisee in the parable of the tax collector, and that Pharisee in the story of the rich young ruler, there's warnings here that if you think that you can see, you will be blind, that you were the real blind ones. And so may we together this morning not only understand the glories of the gospel of a right confession to Jesus Christ and the, the source of our faith and the means of our faith for our salvation and how Jesus has gloriously made us disciples, let us just remember together this morning that we once were blind but now we see for his glory and for our joy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are truly taken back by these truths. We are so undeserved. And that we too, like the blind man, one day we cried out. And you were faithful. And you were just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness by your grace, giving us the faith to believe. And so this morning, oh God, let us look to you, continuing in that faith, exercising that faith this morning that you have given us for your glory. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.